Indigenous Earth Community Podcast, where we celebrate Indigenous heroes from around the world and learn from them on how to honor the traditions of protecting the planet. We discuss actionable tips on how to connect to our beautiful planet while lessening our daily impact. I'm your host, Frank Oscar Weaver. Hello, everyone. I had a great conversation with Neil Giardino, who is an American journalist, producer, and photographer currently based in South America. He just returned from a trip from my home country of Paraguay, where he did some reporting for indigenous communities who are fighting pig soy. Hey, Neil, how are you? Well, thank you, Frank. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And you just came back from a trip to my home country of Paraguay. I have to know, how was your trip? What do you think of it? Incredible. You know, in addition to spending a couple of weeks in, in Asuncion, which was just, just a fascinating place, I got to travel to the far west in the Chaco region, the far east in the uh, Region Oriental, and then I made a trip down to Encarnacion in the south along the, the Argentine border. It was a fascinating trip. And I think far too short, actually. I could I could do another month. I, I remember you telling me that there's a million stories that you could have told. So I'm excited to learn more about the stories that you decide to tell about Paraguay. And did you have a chance to drink some today? I did. Uh, my first or second day when I arrived, I didn't have my own thermos like all of the Paraguayans carry around. But I met a guy on uh, that was selling today on the street. And he, he just grabbed a cold bottle of a plastic bottle bottle of water and made me uh, made me my terere to go very refreshing yeah it's, it tastes so good and for the people that haven't had a terere it's just like i'll say like a green tea but in, in paraguay it's so hot that you know we drink it all the time because it's just so refreshing to drink it throughout the day we drink it the, the hot version uh, in the early mornings or even like in the evening so yeah it's, it's so refreshing and it has a bit of caffeine, but there's there's no crash like like coffee, and is the uh, traditional beverage of Paraguay. So I'm I'm really glad that you got to try it out. I was just gonna say a, a quick tip on terere. I met a friend in Asuncion who made me a, a terere with moringa, uh, the the uh, moringa herb with orange peel, and it along with the yerba mate, and it was very very good. So I'm sold on terere. That's awesome. Yeah, in Paraguay, you know, when we are there in the indigenous communities, you know, before they start the terere, they would ask you, you know, how you feeling? You know, it's like, oh, maybe my stomach's upset. And they're like, okay, no problem. So they will go in the woods and they will maybe get like a vine. They would match up and put in the terere too for your stomach. So they use a lot of medicine herbs. I would say most Paraguayan have a really good knowledge of medicine herbs just from the, the terere drink. Yeah, that was what actually surprised me because when I was out on the street just drinking terere, uh, 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 a man came up to me as we were drinking and he just he was just explaining all of the, the names of the herbs and what I need. And he knew every one of them and he was, you know, it was, it was another just kind of fascinating kind of interaction in Paraguay where you have a largely bilingual culture, right? Even if you have a, a you know, a European descended man in his, in his 50s or 60s, you know, he's fluent in, in, in both Spanish and Guarani, which is just another element that's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a big part of our culture, uh, speaking Guarani. And I remember when I was in high school, I think I was in ninth grade, is when they started teaching Guarani in schools. 
Uh, before then, it was just, you know, what it was taught in at home. You know, your grandma was speaking, your, your parents were speaking. But in the, in the workplace, it, you know, we would speak Spanish. But, you know, when, when I graduated, they're like, you know what? We're going to start teaching Guarani in schools, too. And you can see even like on the TV uh, stations, like the reporting, they'll be speaking Spanish. They go to Guarani and they, and they go back and forth. It's, it's, it's really cool to see. And talking about uh, reporting, on your trip in Paraguay, you did some really serious reporting about indigenous land evictions and contaminated communities. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So my visit to Paraguay in October coincided with a, a pretty inflammatory UN ruling, which uh, landed in mid-October, which essentially blamed the Paraguayan government for violating the rights of the Abua Guarani tribe of eastern Paraguay um, for essentially for allowing the use of banned pesticides in the adjacent um, soy monoculture farms nearby the community. And and there's a picture that you took that is just... It's just heartbreaking. And as someone that kind of seen a similar image, it just hit really close to home. And it's like an indigenous kid looking into the farmers using pesticides into the crops. Can you tell us more about that picture that you took? Yeah, within an hour or two of arriving in the community. And, you know, essentially when you arrive to this community, it's called Campo Aguae. And it is essentially a depleted island amid an entire sea of soy monoculture. I mean, just just thousands of hectares of, of, of soy cultures all around this community. Um, and this is ancestral land that these people have lived on for, 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 for many, many, many years. You know, so about an hour or so into my visit, you know, they had been telling me about the soy contamination and the pesticides. And there was, I mean, perfectly vindicated. Here was this massive tractor that was spraying um, pesticide. This was the reason why I was in this community to document, you know, the poisoning of this community, their land. They're being robbed of their culture. They're being robbed of their spiritual cosmovision. And so I, you know, I knew I, I immediately, I, it was such an iconic moment. I grabbed my camera and I just started taking a picture. One of the younger boys was naked and he's kind of, you know, leaning into the shadow of his, his older sister. And they're both gazing out at this massive sea of, of soy as this, as this, as this fumigation factor just sprays. And, you know, the way that she kind of, the young girl has her hand on her, on her hip, you know, it's sort of, she stands in defiance of it. It was an image that I was proud of and, and also kind of to take a picture like that and to, to, to see this, to see this poisoning in real time in the community. To say that the image is worth a thousand words and just looking at this image is really reflects what's going on in, in Paraguay right now with indigenous communities yeah. losing their the territorial ancestral yeah. land. And I'm so happy that you were able to go there and witness. And, uh, you know, you have written an, an article to Al Jazeera and I'm going to go ahead and put the uh, link on our show description so that way you can kind of read Neil's article and you can see the picture for yourself. And Neil, let me ask you something. I know that Thanks, you right. have done more reporting across Latin America, also in Peru. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, sure. I started out reporting on you know indigenous peoples of, of South America around seven years ago or so. I, I first visited Guyana and did, did a story on on the oil boom that that's you know kind of been convulsing and, and thrilling and and. 
at Guyanese for the last, you know, six or seven years with discovery of offshore oil there. So I started, I kind of got my feet wet in Guyana um, and interviewed and did some reporting on some of the Arawak communities there. But before that, you know, it just came from a, a love of travel and, and experiencing different cultures in, in Latin America. And I guess a formative experience for me was just being, you know, on a on a trip in my in my early twenties in Mexico and being in a market in Oaxaca in Western Mexico and just hearing indigenous languages and thinking, wow, I mean, you know, I know that these are these are these cultures are alive and 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 there's so much to learn. And it just started for me like hearing that language and that you know in a market in Oaxaca basically triggered this passion to sort of dig deeper and understand indigenous cultures in Latin America. And, you know, from then I eventually made my way to South America where I, where I've been focusing a lot of my work, mo- the most of my work on, on indigenous cultures and uh, communities. That's amazing that you're able to go to all these different places and, and tell stories that, in my opinion, are one of the biggest stories of our time. You know, the defense of yeah. the Amazon, of our lungs, of the planet mm-hmm. uh, by indigenous people. Yeah. When you're there in in the Amazon, I gotta ask you, you know, what's what's the favorite sound that you heard while you're there in the uh, in the jungles? I think for me, you know, if if you if you ever have the privilege or had the the privilege of spending a night in an indigenous community, it's just you know, it's it, it, these these are cultures that that that, love, that celebrate life. I mean, amid all of this this horrific, you know, hardship, you know, I think that there's still very much a proud and and and, and celebratory people. A lot of these tribes that I visited, and so I mean, I think one of the joys of being in an indigenous community is at night is just to sort of listen to maybe the 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 the, the, the last hours of, of a party. You know, they drink traditional masato, which is which is cassava or fermented, and just as the as the as the chatter and the music and the festivities die, and then the jungle sort of overtakes everything, right? So you're hearing you're hearing the frogs, you're hearing you're hearing the cicadas, you're hearing this kind of chorus of of, of nocturnal animals, you know. And I definitely I would um, say that's just a powerful experience to hear the jungle at night. Wow, yeah, that's that will be a great experience to see the coexistence of you know indigenous people with the nature around them, and I hope mm-hmm. that you know we are able to preserve that for future generations to to be able to also experience those sounds. And you know, you you traveling in two worlds, you know, from the United States to to Latin America and doing reporting. What do you think that is something that people here in the U.S. have a hard time understanding about the situation at ground level in Latin America? There are so many threats, you know, there are myriad threats for indigenous peoples in, in, in South America and in the Amazon where I, where I work and report. You know, when we talk about, you know, state institutions that, that should be protecting these, these, these vulnerable parts of the population, they just don't exist. There's no safety nets for these people. You know, not only do they live... In, in 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 remote you know just powerfully remote parts of the globe they're also you know they lack lack you know proper sewage and and and, and plumbing they you know they lack medical clinics in their communities and and you know you know so there are these surface level threats is much more 
complicated for us, you know, you know a lot of reporting on, on narco trafficking in, in, in Peru's Amazon. And I recently spent some time in the Vrime, which is the, the, the valley of the Rio Apurimac Ene in Montaro. This is the region that's said to produce about a fifth of the global cocaine supply. And it all happens in this, in this, in this epically beautiful river valley. And, you know, you see when you land in this community, that coca is everywhere, right? The coca is everywhere. And largely there are these sort of rural, semi-impoverished, mestizo, cocaleros, these coca farmers. And, you know, a lot of these communities in Peru, especially, you know, the the Ashaninka, these these, 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 these ancestral ancestral tribes, they have thousands of hectares of land, which, you know, a lot of it is just, is totally threatened on all sides, right? From, from coca, from coca farmers, from land invasion, from illegal logging. And so I spent, you know, about a month, a few months ago in, in, in the Vrime of Peru, reporting on threats to this one tribe, the Ashaninka. And I just, I just think, you know, once you, once you land on the ground there and you talk to people and you hear their stories, which go back decades of, of trauma and violence from, you know, from some subversive fanatical political groups like the Sendero Luminoso, all the way to the present threat of narco um, terrorism in that region. I think it's a really important and it's it's really unknown that, that, that it's so nuanced and complicated in that region that once we, we, we tend in the media to tell stories of good versus evil, you know, black and white, right? But when you're on the ground there, what you realize is that it's so much more complicated. For instance, the Shaninka tribe in Peru who live in this in the Selva Central region of Peru and the Amazon, you know, dire hardship has forced some of these communities to rent their land to cocoa farmers, right? So while you might speak to someone on the ground and they'll tell you, well, we're anti-coca. We don't grow coca in this and we're fighting the cocaleros. Well, you can go to another village and they're they're leasing their land to coca farmers, which are in turn selling those coca leaves on the black market to narco traffickers and smuggling the pasta basica, that cocaine paste through smuggling routes that are controlled by, you know, narco terrorists. So it's so complicated. And I think it, revol- it involves a, a lot of delicacy and a lot of hard questions asked to really get beyond sort of staid kind of black and white narratives once you're on the ground. Yeah, that's, that's, that's impressive. And I'm glad that you are able to articulate uh, really well for our listeners on the reality of living as indigenous people in Latin America that is is very complicated. There's there's a lot of issues that they, they have to deal with. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, you're a superb uh, storyteller. And, you know, a lot of our audience are young people, you know, looking to maybe get into a career in storytelling and journalism. You know, what, what would you say in advice uh, for them as they start on that path? I would just say to find find a theme, find a topic, find a, find a cause that thrills you and, and, and moves you and just go with it. Because look, I'm freelance. I'm a freelance journalist. I live in, I live, I'm based in New York and I, every year I take many months out of my life in my, on my own to, to make these reporting trips into the, into the Amazon, into South America. And often they last much longer than I intend them to. Right. So I'm, you know, I'm going on like my fifth month here in um, South America. And I think I only intended to be gone for around two or three months. But my advice is to, is to put a stranglehold on the topic that, that, that inspires you and just absolutely attack it and, and don't, don't let up. And, and I promise that if you, if you work hard enough, I know it sounds kind of cliche, but if you work hard enough, you will, you will, your, your passion will 
take you to places that you never expected them to. I mean, I never expected in my life to be, you know, reporting on stories about isolated tribes, you know, uh, along the Peru-Brazil border. But, you know, a few years ago there I was on the borderlands of Madre de Dios, Peru and Acre, Brazil. And we saw a group of isolated Mashcopito tribe members, right? This is a tribe that lives along the borderlands. They're still migratory. They've rejected contact with Peruvian national society, right? And I guess to answer your question in a roundabout way is I never in my life thought that I would be sort of on the precipice of that world, right? And having access to that world and speaking to experts about that world and grilling politicians about policy that is threatening those vulnerable communities. But like I said, if you dig your heels into something that you love, you will find that doors open. It might not yield high pay and, you know, in glory, but, but, but satisfaction, yes, and, and cause, yes. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you encouraging the new wave of storytellers that are coming up. And, you know, please follow Neil, you know, and follow his reporting because I think that you're doing such a important work that, you know, we want to support you in all your writings and all the stories that you want to tell. Thank you so much, Frank. Of course. I just wanted to just follow up on the situation down in Pampuaguay. You know, the, the, the story that I reported was on land eviction and contamination of pesticides on these soy crops. But, you know, we're talking about a wave of land evictions in the last several months in eastern Paraguay. You know, on the 18th of last month, there were 70 families evicted from an indigenous community in Caguazú department in eastern Paraguay. You know, just last week, 87 Abba Guarani families lost their homes in another community. And I think just yesterday, another campesino community was evicted from their home. So these are, you know, these... These stories, I focus a lot of my reporting on drug, on narco-trafficking and threats to the Amazon. But when you talk about the unique threats that that, that, that Paraguay's indigenous are facing, I mean, these are like... These are like powerful drug cartels, right? These are like... These soy soy companies are are, are like mafias, right? And, And they have all of the resources to kick out indigenous communities from land that, you know, they claim is ancestral... I reached out to many ministries in in Paraguay to get a sense, get the government's perspective on these land evictions and this contamination. And, you know, hardly any government ministry responded to me. I was able to contact the um, police commissioner in one of the communities that was that was evicted forcefully. And, you know, he told me there's video of this and I maybe, you know, you can post the video or something, but of, you know, this community of Kuguapo'i. This is an Amiba Warani community that was evicted. You know, there, there, there's women and children, you know, women clutching their babies in fear. You, I asked the police chief, I said, why such force? They had anti-riot police. There were helicopters, Frank. And this is in a very rural area, right, of Paraguay. There's 70 families that are, you know, largely unarmed. I mean, they have ancestral weapons in some cases as, as, as you know, as a show of force. But uh, I asked him why such a show of force on the police, and he told me, "Well, you know what? We added we had a um, a judicial warrant to evict this community, and it's policy with our department to have double or triple the personnel in order to avoid violence." But you know, the video shows a different story. It shows a community terrified, being forced out of their community, and the claimants of the land are Mennonite soy farmers. So. 
you can really get a sense of how these big industries are act as mafias and really control, you know, land claims. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a really, really concerning situation out in Eastern Paraguay right now. And just final thought is that a lot of these institutions, you know, are really, really weak. A lot of these indigenous institutions in Paraguay that would, should be representing tribes are really not doing their job. So, so these, these tribes are very vulnerable. Yeah. It's such a complicated topic. And, you know, I have spoken about my friend Osmar on the podcast before, and even to you, Neil, that, you know, he's trying to start his own uh, nonprofit that is run by indigenous people, by indigenous people to help in these cases of land dispute and, mm-hmm. and so much. And, you know, I, I try to support him as much as I can because we really need to to, to fortify the those organizations that are on the ground there mm-hmm. fighting yeah. for, for indigenous rights. Right. And and I don't know, Frank, do you know INDI? This is the, the National Institute of uh, Paraguay's Indigenous. It's yeah. a state organization. You know, I interviewed someone from uh, an illegal director of INDI and, you know, about these land evictions. And he told me, that, you know, while they're fighting hard for land claims for indigenous of Paraguay, he said they are also representing the president of Paraguay, the leader of Paraguay. And 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 they are one of their jobs is to defend private property. So that goes to show you this is the indigenous organization of Paraguay that is actively siding with, you know, land claims by 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 soy monocultural farms. So. With the story that really recently came out on Al Jazeera, I, a friend reached out to me on Instagram and you know just said like, "How can I help?" And I really had a hard time with that question because I really don't know. You know, in 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 Peru, for instance, and in Amazon, there are a number of NGOs that you know advocate for tribes and 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 reforestation and all sorts of social welfare programs, social programs. But I really, in this case, especially with with soy and, and and these evictions and this contamination in Paraguay, I really don't know. So maybe if you had any ideas or had any resources in the case of these evictions or contamination that you might want to share. Yeah, for sure. I, I know some mm-hmm. organizations that are working towards helping, you know, towards evictions, but it is really grassroots that, you know, they, they're not on social media and, you know, they, they don't speak English, they don't have a bank account, you can do But maybe that's something that, you know, going forward, we, we can maybe build a coalition with those organizations and, you know, help them to to bring their stories into the forefront and have people here in the United States and also around the world to to be able to support them. So that's that's yeah. definitely something that we have to look into it and see, you know, how we can we can continue offering our support to those communities. Awesome. Excellent, Frank. And Neil, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I was so happy to have connected with you. And, you know, I'm glad to to see all the reporting that you have done in the past. And I look for, is there any more reporting coming out of from from me? Time will tell. You know, as a freelancer, it's it's just always about, you know, you know, these, these, these news pegs, like what happened last week with the evictions and such, but I did, I am reporting on, I also reported on the far East in the Chaco with the Nivakle tribe uh, uh, on the severe drought that's hitting the, that region. So maybe look out for another piece on Paraguay and the coming. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I'm going to add your uh, content information so people can follow you on social media 
And Neil, okay, great. Thank you, thank you much for your time again. I really appreciate it. I was a very eye-opening conversation. I'm from Paraguay and you know, even from being there, I was aware of everything that was going on. And, you know, people like yourself that is out there reporting, it really makes a difference to get the stories out. So thank you. Thank you so much for all your help, Frank, navigating Paraguay. You were a great help to me. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be able to help a little bit. Uh, and I look forward uh, to talking to you soon. Okay, sounds good. 